Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to cover a lot and cover a little, which by that I mean we're just going to be looking at three verses today, but those three verses require that we review quite a bit. So we'll see how it goes. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Tell you what, please stand for the reading of the scripture if you're able to. It'll be a short one. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. In this parable, Jesus contrasts two types of professed Christians using the metaphor of two houses built on very different foundations. Both listen to the words of Christ, but only one acts upon them. And as we'll see, that makes makes all the difference when the trials of life reach a fever pitch. Now, our passage starts with a therefore, and perhaps you've heard the saying, you always have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore, right? Well, it's there to signify that everything that, that's about to be said is directly connected to everything that's just been said. And our passage that we're looking at today is the tail end of a long sermon preached by Jesus commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, which starts in Matthew 5, right? Jesus goes up and sits on a mountain, and then he starts to preach. So it's called the Sermon on the Mount, and it concludes right here in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. In essence, this therefore is telling us that this parable is the conclusion to the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher of all time. And it's worth noting that Jesus isn't only the king of kings, but he's also the prince of preachers. He is the example that every pastor should seek to emulate as they preach. And that's the point I'm going to return to in a bit. Now, regarding this sermon, uh, the great uh, church father Augustine said uh, it was a perfect standard of the Christian life. And the Puritan William Perkins said that this sermon is the key to the whole Bible. For here Christ opens the sum of the Old and New Testament. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's probably generally regarded as the best modern preacher, uh, said there is nothing that so leads to the gospel and its grace as the Sermon on the Mount. And I could quote a thousand godly theologians and pastors, and they all would say the same thing. This is the greatest sermon, and it is central to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to sit down this afternoon after you leave church and Get refreshed. As a family, just read through it. It won't take too long. Um, I listened to it a hundred, like, I don't know, not a hundred times. I listened to it a whole lot this week. 
And uh, when you read big blocks of scripture, it's so helpful to get pick up on themes and see what's saying. So I encourage you to read the whole thing, because this morning time only affords us to, to really closely look at its, uh, at its conclusion. Now, as often the case, the conclusion to this sermon exists to provide the listener with the big takeaway. That's the purpose of any conclusion, uh, to make sure that whoever you're speaking to, the congregation, the audience, understands the main point of everything that has just been taught. And a conclusion, then, isn't meant to diminish anything that's been taught, but to underscore why it's important. So these um, three short verses that we're considering today reveal to us why the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount that Augustine and Perkins and Lloyd-Jones and many others say is central, why it is so central. It provides us with the big, the big takeaway. Now, we do need to do a brief survey of the sermon before we return to our passage Because in verse 27, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine. Now, he isn't just referring to his words in general, even though everything he's about to say could be applied to it. Um, But in context, uh, he's actually uh, referring to the specific words he just finished preaching, starting in Matthew 5, up to this point. Now, obviously, every word of Christ matters and of great importance. So I'm not denying that. I'm just saying contextually, when he says these words of mine, those sitting in front of him, you know, know he's winding down. Um, some of us love pastors who say, in conclusion, right, and then they finish. But sometimes there's pastors that say, in conclusion, and then there's like five more conclusions. It's like the end of Fellowship of the, Re- or the Return of the King. I don't know if you saw that movie, but that movie fades to black like five times. You're like, is it going to be over? But here, he's, he's concluding, and when he says, these words of mine, uh, he's referring to everything that's been said. And the reason this distinction matters here is that Jesus, in, his, in this parable that we're about to study, is warning those sitting right in front of him. Right? With this parable, he's calling them out. And I think that's noteworthy. He isn't the sort of preacher that preaches a nice, clean, theoretical, abstract sermon. He issues challenges and warnings to the people in front of him. Every commentator I read pointed this out. Every single one did. He's saying, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them are like this sort of house. Or, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them is like that sort of house. Which are you? what he's asking. He's bringing them to a crossroads in this final parable. He's causing them, self, uh, causing them to examine themselves after listening to a long sermon. This is the method of Jesus' preaching. Now, I'm persuaded to believe that most evangelicals despise this sort of preaching. We want preaching that engages our mind, right? But not, not the type that challenges our practice. And if you're the exception to that, praise the Lord. Praise God. But generally speaking, people will say things like, the application belongs to the Holy Spirit. Really, the preaching didn't, right? I think the Holy Spirit works through means. We see that all the time. Yes, of course, the Holy Spirit's the final person that preaches or convicts people, but God works through means. Anyway, this sort of preaching that we want, which is heavy on theology or content or make you feel good or whatever type it is, but doesn't challenge you, that's not the sort of preaching that Jesus preaches. He was constantly offending people in his preaching and bringing them to a place of decision-making. It's uncomfortable. Have you ever sat before a salesman and you know, like, uh, at some point he's going to make you decide? You know, you're, like, looking at something. I hate that. He's like, so, you ready to get into this car today? Ah," You know? Well, 
Jesus isn't a salesman. So, you know, if you're like me, you try to avoid the salesmen. I make them chase me through the stores, you know, see if they can catch me. But he does bring people to a point of decision constantly in his preaching. And let me give you a, a, one more example of this in the ministry of, of Christ. In John 6, Jesus preaches a message in which he explains that he's the bread come down from heaven. And he talks about how you, drink, how you have to drink his blood and eat his flesh, right? And people are really offended and, uh, and really upset. And um, both the Jews and the disciples are bothered by his preaching. The text says it like four or five times. It's calling your attention to it. Um, and some of his disciples say, hey, man, this is the way you're talking. It's, it's a difficult teaching. You do see that, right, Jesus? It's difficult. Um, and then some of them are just grumbling. They're upset. They're grumbling. And all that leads to a climax in verse 66, which says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. And that, of course, is human preachers. That's our biggest fear. But what does, what does Jesus do? You know, he's losing disciples. What Does he back down? No, not one bit. Not in the slightest. He's a shepherd of souls. He refuses to abandon his sheep. He loves them dearly, and he knows that they must be challenged. Right? Any dad knows this. Any mom knows this. There's a point where you want where you don't really want to discipline your kids and you don't want to go there, but you know you must because you care for them. Right? It would be much easier to like go cool off and never talk about it again. Right? But in verse 67, or so in verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? I mean, that, that verse blows my mind. He just had thousands of people in front of him, right? Ready to... to Make him king of Jerusalem. And a bunch of them leave. And now he's down to just 12. And he looks at them and says, do you want to go away as well? Essentially saying, are you going to bolt too? Are you going to take off? Or will you submit to the word of God? Now that's a preacher. That's a preacher. That's a pastor. His sermon doesn't stay in the pulpit. But as Richard Baxter said, it comes down into the life of the people. And look at the beautiful, wonderful, gracious effect it has in the hearts of the humble. In verse 68, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He brought Peter to this point of crisis. And look, it's beautiful, isn't it? It encourages me. I want to have that faith. I want to be like Peter. And what Jesus was doing in John 6, he's also doing here in Matthew 7. He's making sure that his hearers are called to action, that they are doers of the word, even in the midst of great trial and difficulty. And just like in John 6, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is absolutely radical. It's full of difficult teaching. So let's quickly skim this sermon, just consider a few highlights as we work our way to... um, to chapter 7. In Matthew 5, the sermon starts with the Beatitudes, which to us probably doesn't seem very radical, right? They, they, we put them up in nurseries. You know, like the Beatitudes and our nurseries, we don't think of them as radical. The one that never, I never wrap my mind around is why people put Noah's Ark in nurseries. You can come to like Sunday school and I'll tell you like, if there is a horror story in the Bible, it's Noah's Ark. Here, here's one of the most frightening stories in Scripture, little one. Um, nonetheless, we tend to think of things like the Beatitudes as something you'll knit. 
um, and not radical, but consider how diametrically opposed the Beatitudes are to the thinking of a fallen world. For example, this is Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does the world celebrate those who are broken over their sins? Those who see themselves as in great spiritual need? Absolutely not. Quite to the contrary, the world makes every effort to minimize sin and convince people that they are basically good, right? You just be you, you know? We're all different. There's nothing wrong with you. Snowflake, right? This is the attitude of the world. But that's not what we see in Beatitudes, right? People that are broken over their spiritual state, they know themselves. And to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. What a promise. What a blessing. How about 11 uh, verse, uh, through 12? Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. Right? You don't see that one in those little Bible promise books, right? You ever see those Bible promise books? They got all these sort of promises. Jeremiah 29, always out of context, but you don't see that one, right? Ah, man. You know what promise I was claiming today over my life? Blessed are you when people insult you. That's, that's my life verse. Um, you certainly already taught this in public school. Now, our nature is to hate being insulted and persecuted. Our nature is to seek vengeance on anyone who offends us and calls us a name. But Christ calls us to rejoice and be glad because we suffer for his kingdom. It's pretty radical, Right? It's crazy compared to the world. Look at verse 21 through 24. You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. In essence, Jesus is saying we can be guilty of murder just by hating our brother. Murderous actions have their source in hateful attitudes. Therefore, our hateful attitudes are an infant form of murder. And how many of us feel justified in our hatred today against people that we perceive have wronged us? How many times have you had to be corrected? I know I've had to be corrected many, many times. And learn to forgive them as God's forgiven me. Again, radical stuff. Verse 27 and 28, Jesus says, You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And again, the ethic of the world at its best is something like you can look, but don't touch, right? That's about as good as it gets in the world. You can look, but don't touch. And I'll tell you, I have heard Christian men say something very close to that. But that's not scripture, right? Jesus calls his disciples not to just have clean hands, but a clean heart, right? To control your eyes, to make a covenant with your eyes, as Job said. Or how about this one? Verse 29 to 30. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. 
For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Now, obviously, Jesus is using figurative language here in what is still a shocking passage. And I like what Pink, A.W. Pink, says on this. He says, there must be the uncompromising excision of every hurtful, everything hurtful to the soul. To pluck out the right eye means that we are to rigidly restrain and strictly govern our senses and members and deny ourselves, even though it involves present hindrance, financial loss, and personal pain. No matter how pleasant and dear the presence and use of certain things be to us, yet if they are occasions of sin, they must be relinquished and avoided. In short, the Christian is to be a hater of sin and willing to take extreme measures to be pleasing to God. Pluck it out of an eye, cut it off a hand. Listen to the strong language Jesus is using. It's very, very um, visceral, right? I mean, yet you see the image. I can't help but think of it. And then in verse 38, Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, right? That's not so much talking about punching as much as it is about insult. Seems to be the language there. Um, And then verse 40 through 42, he tells us to go the extra mile with people who are asking for our help and to lend to those who ask. Uh, Those are verses that I like to skip over a lot of times in my heart. You know, very convicting to me. Verse 43 to 45, he tells us not only to love our enemies, but to pray for them so that we may be seen as sons of, of the Father of God. Think about that. Right? We can say, like, theoretically, like, you don't hate your enemy. But prayer means you actually take time to intercede on their behalf, right? You're mindful of their condition. You're praying for them, that they would turn to the Lord, right? Or that whatever the issue is between you and them could be resolved, and there could be peace that honors God. That's, that's radical. Each of these verses deserve a sermon or two, and maybe even three. Um, Pink's uh, commentary has like four or five chapters on each major break in it. And then uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary, which I highly recommend, is about that thick. And that is the commentary that made John Piper want to go into the ministry. He wanted to be a scholar, and he read through the whole commentary of uh, the Sermon on the Mount by Lloyd-Jones. And he came away saying, I should love the church. The church is what I should give my life to. That's how powerful these words are, how it reorientates people. Um, And each of them, Jesus... uh, Jesus' teaching turns the self-loving, self-serving ethics of the world upside down and calls us to be godly. Now, in chapter 6, Christ primarily takes on the self-righteous practices of the religious. There's a sense in which the Sermon on the Mount is a polemic or something, uh, an attack on, on the false sort of spirituality that the Pharisees have been teaching people. So that's going on there, too. So he's kind of dealing with that. Um, In verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. So, uh, it it doesn't matter if we're giving to the poor or praying or fasting. All these things should never be done with the goal of calling attention to your spirituality. People are going to see things. People seeing you. Like, it doesn't mean... I, I know some people have gone weird directions with the prayer closet passage. Right, where they only like pray in their prayer closet, and they have a closet that is their prayer. It's got like a pillow in there, and they go in and pray. And I'm cool with you doing that, but you're allowed to pray in front of people. You're allowed to pray publicly, 
but just not with the goal of them seeing you. Right? So they think, whoa, look at that guy. Ain't praising the King James. That's the most ornate, beautiful prayer I've ever heard. You know, that you shouldn't be doing that. Take, for example, uh, verse 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they're fasting. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. Right? I've seen my kids do something like this when they want me to know that, you know, they're not happy. And they'll walk around. <laughs> Make sure that I see them. What's going on? Oh, nothing's wrong, you know. And people do that with their spirituality. Um, where, you know, they, their face is kind of gaunt. Like, hey, what's going on with you, man? Oh, you know, nothing really. Are you okay? Well, just been fasting for this thing I need in my life. You know, they want your praise. They want you to see them. And look, you're like this too, I guarantee. I remember... I was a new kid in school eight times, and that has an effect on you, all right? If anyone wants to, like, break me down psychologically, there you go. New kid eight times, eight different schools. And um, kind of my identity up to middle school is what I was an artist, right? I'm a pretty good illustrator. So I would always draw something and leave it out on my desk. So someone would pass by and say, oh, did you draw that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I did. You know, ain't no thing, right? <laughs> I wanted them to know, like, how skilled I was. You know, I wanted them to know my identity. And, and we do the same thing spiritually, you know. So don't get bent over the axle. Don't get weird with this. It's okay for people to see um, the, the, the works God's accomplishing you, right? We know that's one way that people glorify our God in heaven through the works. But don't be like the hypocrites. Verse 21 through 23. Um, well, I guess what I would say is, is um, the, the big thing is that he's saying Christianity isn't about appearing to be spiritual as a way to impress other believers. He's commanding us to fear God instead of fearing men. Right? That's that if, we, if you do it for God's glory because you fear him, it's good. Praise God. If you do it because you want other people to like pat you on your back, not good. Jesus then commands us not to be like the pagans who think God will hear them for their many words, you know, but rather to address God intimately as Father who provides for his children. The Lord's Prayer. We know that. And when we go down to the, uh, the abortion clinic, there's members of a certain church um, that just repeat over and over again the same prayer. No, I mean, it's like a mantra over and over again, droning on and on, as if, like, this formula will force God to act on your behalf, as if God's like some big vending machine in the sky, and you just have to find the right code. Right? And if you say the prayer enough times, God will intercede. But in John 7, he says, no. Jesus says, here's how you pray. And he gives us an outline. We call it the Lord's Prayer, or the prayers for the disciples. And uh, so he teaches us the right way to pray, to, to seek God intimately. And then in verse 25 to 34, Christ calls us to forsake worry and to instead seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And that's a big deal. right? I drive down to Ingalls and get my food. These people, like, had to kill their animals or, or grow crops. And there was a, if there was a, a plague or some sort of problem, they, they, were, they had a lot more to worry about than we do. Um, so to add that to that um, command all the more is that he calls us to trust in him. He says, um, we aren't to be like the world that's driven to and fro by their various worries. You know, staying up all night. 
you know, it's one thing that you work hard to make money because you want to glorify God through your vocation. It's another thing where you can never rest and you can never stop because you're scared and you want to find some sort of security in your bank account. You know, that's how, that's how the pagans work. That's not how Christians work. We know that we could lose it all. Someone once challenged me on having a job that gave me security, and this someone was a dentist, to which I asked him, you're right-handed, aren't you? He said, yes. And I said, what happens if, like, your hand gets, like, shattered, right? Like, they just sh- like you shut the car door on it, and your hand's shattered, and you're like, what are you going to do? Like, you spent seven years of your life. Can, you, can a dentist have a hand like that? Can he? Chuck, can a dentist, like, get into I don't think he can. So, uh, yeah, I work hard. But, look, our security comes from the Lord. We have to trust him. We can lose it all. Some of us have lost it all before and been reminded that the things that we thought were sure, you know, weren't sure. The only thing that's sure is God. So Jesus calls us to trust him. And, again, this is radical. Um, and then in chapter 7, Christ commands us not to judge hypocritically, right? Every nonbeliever's favorite passage he says, uh, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And this passage is not, isn't teaching us to not judge. It's simply teaching us that to first judge ourselves and to make immediate corrections before judging someone else. The issue is hypocrisy. And sadly, many professed believers are quick to judge others for sins that they themselves are presently committing. Right? That's often why they're so sensitive to them. They have a bad conscience before God. And that's why they bring it up to you. I remember I had a roommate once that was really mad that I was reading Calvin and Hobbes instead of the Bible, just casually, right? I couldn't, get, I couldn't wrap my mind why he was so mad about it. I was like, what is this about? You're like, I'm not allowed to read Calvin and Hobbes? The only, all I can do is sit around and read the Bible, like, constantly. And, uh, and then I found out that he, he, he was drunk, and he just had a bad conscience before God. And it made him hypersensitive to anything that he thought might be sin. And that's why I brought it up. You know, so first, remove the log from your own eye. You know, judge yourself. Anytime someone falls in sin or you have to deal with someone's sin, think, how is this true of my life? How can I repent of this? It'll keep you humble. And the way you'll come before them in correction will be much different, right? Because you'll come to them as one sinner that's repented and find, found how good God's grace is. And then be able to urge them to repentance uh, and to trust God's grace. We don't want to be people that are experts at finding fault with others and keeping scrupulous records of wrongs committed, right? You don't have enough paper for the sins of my life. You don't. And I don't have enough paper for the sins in your life. And if I knew your thoughts and you knew my thoughts, we all wouldn't want to be friends, right? But, But God changes us. God washes us. And God's working in us and sanctifying us and bringing us together in, in a wonderful bond of unity through Christ where sinners can be family. You know, it's beautiful. It really is. This should not be the testimony of the church, that of being fault finders. We should be known as those who are well acquainted not only with the sins of others, but much more so with our own sins. Here's a challenge for you. If someone asked you, what are, like, your major sins you're fighting right now? Could you list four? Better yet, wives. If someone asked you, what sins are your husband currently struggling with, could you list four? If you're a good wife, you can. But not because you want to hold it over him, but because you're praying for him. You want to help him. Be sure you know each other's sins, but not as, like, some sort of contest, but as a way to help each other, you know?
Then, of course, in verse 12, he gives us what's usually referred to as the golden rule. And everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. How many times, parents, do we say this to children? Perhaps we need to, like, look in the mirror and say it a couple times, right? Like, they just say, when you're pointing one finger towards someone else, there's, you know, three pointing back at you. <laughs> you ever heard anyone say that? If not, now you have. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, we should treat people the same way we want to be treated. And this is this is the summation of the law and prophets. That's pretty amazing. Then he ends his sermon with three warnings. In verse fifteen, he warns us about teachers who outwardly look like Christians; they're wolves in sheep clothing, and reminds us in verse twenty that we will know them by their fruits. So the first warning is that outward appearances don't always correspond to inward realities. And then in verse 21 through 23, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So calling yourself a Christian, talking a big game, doesn't make you a Christian. You can claim you do this or that spiritual thing. But if your life is defined by lawlessness, you don't know Christ as Lord. A Christian's faith is, is both internal and external. Internally, a Christian's motives are the glory and honor of God. That's our main motives. That's what we live for. Make sure God gets his honor. We're not in this just because we get rewards. That's part of it. We're not just in this for the blessings. That's part of it but it's because we know God deserves honor and glory. That's our main motive. Externally, this leads to a life that more and more conforms to God's law, right? By the power of the Spirit. Remember the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31? He writes his law on our hearts. We want to do it from our heart more and more. So it leads to a changing life, more and more sanctification. It's both attitude and action. So this second warning is that it's possible to delude yourself into thinking you are a Christian with lots of talk, but have all that talk at odds with your walk. And this is true of America, right? In the Midwest, we think of it as a cicada shell, right? You ever seen a cicada shell? From far away, you think there's a cicada. And then you walk up, oh, there's nothing in that shell. And just crush it. And that's what, that's what Christianity is like in the Midwest, there's an outward, external appearance. There's something that has the shape and form of the church, of Christianity, but lacking its power. You know? And then I come down to the South, and I find out America's America. That's what I find out. This is, this is a problem everywhere. And then I read the Bible, and I find out it actually has nothing to do with America. It was a problem in the New Testament in Jerusalem. That's why Jesus is talking about it. It's not regional. It's not about America. It's, 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 it's about, this is us. We struggle with being the hypocrites and having outward um, expressions of faith that are at odds with what's going on in our heart. Which brings us all the way back where we started with the parable of two builders. After all these words, after all this teaching, after all these doctrines, all these things Christ has taught us, he says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, 
for it's been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who's, who built his house on the sand. The rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. So we have two builders, two houses, two foundations and two very different results when those houses, households are tested by the trials of life. And it always stands out to me that Christ is fond of breaking people down into two categories. It always sticks out when you read any of the Gospels. Christ tells us that there's sheep, and then there's goats, wheat, and chaff. Christ tells us that there are those who enter his kingdom through the narrow gate, or excuse me, yeah, the narrow gate, and those who enter destruction through the wide gate. And Christ tells us that you're either a good tree bearing good fruit, or a bad tree bearing bad fruit. And Christ tells us that you'll either serve the true God, or serve a false God. No man can have two masters. It is always an either or. And if you sit through any of my Sunday schools, I, this is a point I make often, um, but the reason I, I, I focus on it is because our culture absolutely hates the idea of black and white. They hate the idea of like, distinctions. I mean, it's being demonstrated in an unprecedented way in, a, in our country right now, where there's no such thing as male and female anymore. That somehow it's like hatred to say, hey, uh, this, is for, this is for dudes, you know? Like, there's a girl one right there. Bigot! I think this is weird. <laughs> you know, I think this is wrong. Yeah, it's, we've, it's crazy, right? They want to they wanna believe everything exists on a spectrum, right? Womanish, manish, she, he, he, she. I, it's just like this crazy spectrum. But it doesn't just apply to gender and sexuality, to politics, right, to religion. They apply it to everything. They claim that, um, or morality, they claim that everything is ultimately shades of gray, that there is no black and white. Nothing's right or wrong. Everything's situational and relative to the individual. But that's not the logic of Scripture. In Scripture, there's God's way, and then there's the wrong way. That's what's in Scripture. There are people who obey and people that rebel. It's black and white. And that, of course, isn't to say that there aren't things that are complicated and difficult uh, to, to discern which category they fall into. There, there certainly is. But they only appear to be gray to our eyes because of our lack of wisdom, our lack of knowledge. From God's perspective, there's certainly black and right, white, and there's a right answer. But, you know, we're fallen and finite. But, man, most of Scripture is black and white. It really is. The most important things are. And we just bring confusion to the text a lot of times, and that's why we don't think we know what's going on, um, because we don't. So Jesus is, is always binary, always. Zeros and ones, rights and wrongs. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says about this. This is his conclusion. Our Lord has finished his Sermon on the Mount and has given his detailed instruction. He's laid down all his great and vital, vital principles, and he is now applying truth. He's confronting his followers with the two possibilities. They must all go in at one or the other of the two gates, either at the narrow gate or the broad gate. They will walk either near the narrow way or the broad way. His purpose has been to help them as they face this choice. He's, belie- he's bringing his professed disciples to a crossroads, to a point of decision. So again, we have 
Jesus here breaking people into two categories, comparing and contrasting them for the purpose of, of requiring his followers to consider which category do you belong, calling them to self-examination, to be somewhat introspective. So let's consider these, these two people, these two builders, what they have in common first. First thing that stands out in the passage is that both the wise and foolish builder hear the words of Jesus. Right? They both hear the words of Jesus. And it's clear then that these builders think of themselves as disciples of Christ. They think of themselves as Christians. They belong to a church. They sit in the pew and actually listen to what's taught. If you ask them what the sermon was about, both builders could basically tell you. Right? They, they're hearers. They're defined by actually hearing. So this isn't like the sowing the seed parable where the, the seed falls on the hard ground and doesn't receive it. It's one of the other soils. They actually are paying attention. They both read their Bibles. They both read commentaries, theology, and other Christian literature. They both attend conferences and perhaps even take notes. They both are always learning and accumulating more biblical knowledge. They are both hearers of the Word of God, and they like hearing it. They like it. They like God's Word. And this shows us that hearing, listening, and accumulating biblical knowledge isn't an end, is not an end in itself. And you wouldn't know this if you're to draw conclusions by simply observing evangelical culture in our country. Most Christians think that being godly means consuming large amounts of content. Large amounts of content. This is certainly true in my generation. I see this um, where people brag about how many sermons they listen to. They'll download all these MP3s and listen to sermon after sermon after sermon. Right? And they'll read, they'll read lots of, 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 of books over and over again and go to lots of conferences. And, um, and then they'll get really passionate and share it all over social media. And I remember there was someone who I, I was kind of discipling for a time. And uh, he loved to talk theology. He'd always like, send me like, really complicated questions. What do you believe about the impeccability of Christ? You know, it's a good question. It's a hard one. Right? Not maybe as hard as the whole probation thing in Sunday school, if you're in Sunday school. But, nonetheless, hard. And I would say, well, man, I'd love to talk to you about that. But, you know, my, my advice to you is uh, you start really focused now in your life on, on reading the Bible with your family and deal with Because he's a pretty new believer. And he was, like, sharing YouTube videos on Facebook and meme after meme and and, and discussing, like, just all into theology and asking me for a list of books he should buy. You know, like, well, you can go to my Amazon, my, my Amazon recommendation list if you want. But, um, but anytime I pressed them on application, on actually applying it, there was resistance. And the result was, fairly recently, this person rejected the Lord quite publicly, quite bluntly. And... It, you know, you kind of saw it coming after a while because there's a love of knowledge, but not a love of holiness. They're not the same thing. Not necessarily. Spurgeon says, this is my favorite quote on this. <clears throat> Spurgeon wisely said, Master those books you have. Read them thoroughly. Bathe in them until they saturate you. Read and reread them. Digest them. Let them go into your very self. Peruse a good book several times. Make notes and analyze it. A student will find that his mental constitution is more affected by one book thoroughly mastered than by 20 books. He has merely skimmed. 
Little learning and much pride comes from hasty reading. Some men are disabled from thinking by putting their meditation away for the sake of much reading. In reading, let your motto be much, not many. So yes, learning, studying, caring about this stuff's good. But it, it has a purpose, right? It has a purpose. We see this in Jesus' method. He's calling them to act on it. Not just hear, but to act. Now the second thing that the foolish and wise builder have in common is their goal. Their goal is to build a house. They both desire to build a house, a house in which they could live with their families, dwell at ease, and enjoy themselves. That's why we build houses, place of protection, place of refreshment. They wanted the same thing. They thought about the same thing. They labored towards the same thing. And I think it's fair to conclude that these houses looked a lot alike. They're perhaps even identical. Um, I'm not the only one that has that thoughts. Other commentators bring it up. But, um, but I think they're same design, same neighborhood, perhaps even the same picket fences. And the reason is the thrust of these last three warnings in Matthew 7 uh, is wolves that look like sheep, right? Wolves and sheep uh, and true sheep, they look alike, right? Because the wolves come in sheep clothing. You can't tell the difference, um, at least not at first. And false brethren that sound just like true believers, right? We haven't, we've cast out demons, we've preached, we've done miracles. Um, that's why you have the headset. Um, but uh, they, they, they sound like Christians. Um, and then here we have these two, these two houses. And I think they look very much the same to the naked eye. The only real difference in these houses, in the passage, is its foundation. And foundations aren't visible. You can't see foundations. I know I'm quoting a lot from Lloyd-Jones, but he's probably one of the best on this. He says, we need to be reminded constantly because there is no point at which the devil, in his subtlety, seems to trap us so frequently. We cling to the notion that difference between true Christian and pseudo-Christian is obvious. Our roles, our Lord's role, our, our, excuse me, our Lord's main point, however, is that this is a most subtle matter. It is not obvious either in the case of the men or the houses. If we do not stress that point, we miss the whole purpose of this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Which then brings us to the differences, right? He's saying the whole purpose is that he's saying like the true can, uh, professors that actually know God and professors that are deluded in thinking, they, they look very similar. You know, that's why we, we accept people into the church on a credible profession of faith. Right? We like, don't pull a credit report. <laughs> you know, we don't dig deeply. But if you, if you profess to know Christ, we, we give you a judgment of charity. But just because you're in the church doesn't mean you're a Christian. This is the classical distinction of a vis- between the visible and the invisible church. So there's people in the visible church. That's the local church. People I'm looking at right now. Um, and there's the invisible church. These are all the saints gathered up from all time that are definitely part of the church. And, uh, and we always grant people a judgment of charity wherever we can. You know, because perhaps they're just a smoking flax. Maybe they're just weak in their faith in any time. You know, who knows? I don't know. Jesus tells us to be careful not to pull, try to pull the uh, chaff out with the wheat or from, separate from the wheat because you might pull out some of the wheat too. Um, but that's what, that's what uh, Lloyd-Jones is saying. They look very similar. He says, uh, well, this brings us to the differences. First, one builder here, he hears and acts, and the other doesn't. And James picks up on this theme big time. 
really, if you read the book of James, it's, it's almost like a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, he picks up a lot of the main ideas in it, and they're, 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 fun, they're fun to read back to back. So if, if you're willing to go beyond reading the Sermon on the Mount, I encourage you to go right back into James. There's no way you could preach on James and not reference the Sermon on the Mount over and over again. But listen to what James says. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourself doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For anyone who hear is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a factual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. The builder who hears and acts is the blessed man. He doesn't become a forgetful hearer. He's paying attention to, to what he hears every Sunday, what he, what he sees in Scripture, and then he's quick to apply it in his life. But the other guy just hears and doesn't act, and that's why he's not blessed. Second, one builder lays a deep foundation on a rock, and the other doesn't. And it's simple. Applying the word to your life is hard, and it takes real effort. It requires real zeal. It's much easier just to, like, you know, throw, throw down uh, wood on top of, of the ground without digging deep. Find, you know, you got to dig and pull the soil away to get down to, to the rock. And, and growing in holiness is hard. It's hard. Sanctification takes effort. I mean, that's, again, we went through Titus on Sunday evenings, and that Titus stresses that. And third, the trials of life pull down the house founded on the sand, but not the house founded on the rock. It stands the testing of that trial. I mean, I guess we could say the thing they have in common is that they're all tried. They all go through a storm. But the difference is what happens in the storm. And I'll give you a personal example. Um, some years ago, uh, Emily was pregnant, and, and uh, everything was going well. I used to joke that my wife had a womb of iron, right? And, uh, and we were getting ready to go to the fair, and then our midwife came over and stuck the stethoscope in my wife's belly, and my daughter, who was nine months old in the womb, right, was dead. Her heart had stopped. And she was no longer breathing, and it shocked us to the core. And we went, you know, I, I was in denial, like, no, the stethoscope's broken, or whatever it was. The Doppler is broken. So then we go over to somewhere uh, where they, they can put the thing on it, the, other, the better Doppler, and, and she is, in fact, dead. And... Um, and immediately I thought, I remember saying to Emily, like, we have to decide whether we're Christians or not. I just knew, like, our faith was being tried. Are we Christians or are we not? Which is it? Is God sovereign or not? You know? Is the world fallen? Is that why this happened? Or not? Now, this was, uh, thanks in large part to faithful pastors I've had that God sent in my life over years and faithful friends who have challenged me to actually believe the things they claim to believe. It was hard. We're like trees, Christians, if we're mature. Like we have deep roots, and the winds won't blow us over, but like the tops of the trees, they bend and shake, right? And we, bent, we were bent and we shook. 
But God sustained us, and on the other side, bring it. God was good, right? God strengthened those of us who've suffered through cancer, right, or major sickness. We know that God's good, right? Those who've gone through major trial, losing someone you love or being diminished in some way, we know God's good. And trials reveal our foundation. Is it God's word? Is that what you've been building on? Is, it, is this God's word applied in your life? If it is, when that trial comes, you will stand. That's the blessing, right? The Sermon on the Mount starts with blessed. This is the blessing of listening to the Sermon on the Mount and, and applying it, that God will keep you. God will keep you to that day. He'll sustain you through very severe trials. You know, there's times where we just go through seasons where everything's great and suddenly the world falls apart. It's not just rain. It's floods and winds. Keeps coming at us. Will this end? And it does. Or God takes us home. So be it. Right? And then he welcomes us in. We're with him. And sometimes people in this life don't have many trials. It's a big question in Proverbs, right? Why do the wicked prosper? But their day of trial will come on the day of judgment, right? No one avoids this. Our faith will be tried. Let me end with this. Stott says, The truth on which Jesus is insisting in these final two paragraphs of the sermon is that neither an intellectual knowledge of him nor a verbal profession, though both are essential in themselves, can ever be substitute for obedience. The question is not whether, whether we say nice, polite, orthodox, or enthusiastic things to or about Jesus nor whether we hear his words, listening, studying, and pondering, and memorizing until our minds are stuffed with his teaching, but whether we do what we say and do what we know. In other words, whether the lordship of Jesus, which we profess, is our life's major reality. Brethren, hear and do. Lay a deep foundation. Build a house that will last. God will protect and preserve his faithful. He'll take care of you. He'll keep you to the day of Christ through every flood and storm. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are good and gracious and kind. You're like a mother that brings, a mother hen who brings the chicks underneath her wings and protects us and nurtures us and cares for us. Thank you. Thank you, God. Strengthen our faith to love your word, to obey it, to submit to it, God. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.